0: You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good morning here in D.C. and good afternoon in London. Um, My name is Toby Dalton. I'm the Deputy Director of the Nuclear Policy Program here at the Carnegie Endowment. And it's our great pleasure to uh, work with uh, INENS and the U.S. Embassy in London and the State Department here to host this conversation on nonproliferation issues and specifically the NPT with Ambassador Susan Burke. Uh, Ambassador Burke uh, is uh, the special representative of the president for NPT issues, uh, headed the U.S. delegation to the 2010 uh, NPT Review Conference, uh, and will speak for a little bit today uh, about how she sees this issue going forward, including in the upcoming uh, NPT PrepCom that will start in Vienna later this month. Um, And then we'll have some back and forth, some Q&A, um, Mina, did you want to take a few minutes to introduce the to the group here?
1: Sure. Um, well, thank you, um, Toby, for the, um, the quick introduction there. Can you hear us? Yes, or do you want to speak louder? No, nope.
2: nope, we can hear you.
1: Excellent. Um, well, thank you um, to, uh, to Ambassador Burke for um, kindly agreeing to, um, to take part in the event, and to Carnegie as well for um, co-hosting this event with us. Uh, we're delighted to be hosting this over video link um, with Washington. And, um, and I'll take a few minutes to explain a little bit about what we do and, um, and then explain about what we're doing today um, in London. Um, ININS, um, for those of you who don't know, is a network that facilitates dialogue amongst the next generation of experts. And we have about 400 members at the moment from about 55 countries. And most of them are um, young professionals with about 1 to 10 years experience in any relevant nuclear field. And, um, and ININS Um, hosts events around the world, and um, we have various publications and working groups as well. Um, This event that we're hosting in London is um, part of our multilateral policy and institutions working group. We've had a couple of events so far, and this is the first one in London that we're hosting ahead of the PREPCOM. And um, and this morning, well, this afternoon, we discussed um, disarmament. And later on, after the session in Washington, we're going to be discussing non-proliferation issues. So we're hoping um, much of Ambassador Berg's remarks will tie into what we've been discussing here in London and um, and feed into our broader discussions that we're going to be hosting in Vienna um, next month and later in the year as well. So um, I'll keep it short, but um, but I'll head back to Toby now and and look forward to Ambassador Berg's remarks. Great. Thanks very much, Mina. So, Susan, you. (coughs)
2: All right. Well, thank you very much. And, and it's a little awkward because the screen is behind me. So I've got people in front, but I, I know you're there. And um, it's, uh, um, I'm really happy to be here this morning. I know it's your afternoon uh, to participate in this roundtable discussion. And I really want to thank Carnegie and, and Toby in particular for facilitating this uh, transatlantic event. Um, this is really helpful. And Embassy London for taking the initiative to, uh, to get this thing Going. I think this is uh, the wave of the future, and uh, it's wonderful to be able to connect with you without uh, costing the government any travel money, which is very important these days, so we should look to this as a model for the future. Um, I'm going to talk for, uh, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, I want to describe the U.S. approach to the the first meeting of the preparatory committee for the 2015 NPT Review Conference. Um, briefly review the progress to date on the 2010 action plan, and then just to offer some thoughts on the role of the next generation in connection with these issues. And I, I think it's particularly important, Mina, and her compadres who have launched this, uh, this inens group. Um, this is really important. And for those of us who are reaching the ends of our career, we're very gratified to see all of this talent and enthusiasm and uh, intellect uh, being teed up to carry the ball forward. So to start off looking at the first PREPCOM, and I'll use shorthand, RevCon, PREPCOM, because it will shorten my remarks, <clears throat> I want to just take a minute and go back two years to the 2010 Review Conference. Seems like only yesterday. And at that meeting, the NPT parties, um, I say, uh, in my, my words, defied the skeptics uh, and, uh, and the cynics by uh, producing by consensus a substantive and balanced action plan for progress on the NPT's three pillars. And I know, Mina, you mentioned disarmament, but I'm gonna cover all three pillars because uh, they're all critically important and they all depend on on each other. And there was also a decision on the Middle East. And while the review conference president's report, which was the backward look at the treaty, did not not, uh, reflect a full consensus, it did reflect very broad agreement, I think, and the views of many states Um, And it also reflected the extensive and constructive discussions by the parties on a a wide variety of very important NPT issues. Um, One of the important ones for the United States was the issue of discouraging abuse of the NPT's withdrawal provision, using North Korea as an example of that as a a real issue, not a a theoretical one. In 2010, the NPT parties uh, demonstrated collective support for the treaty as well as a greater understanding of the mutually reinforcing character of the treaty's three pillars. And very importantly to those of us who have been involved in multilateral diplomacy for many years, um, they demonstrated the ability to reach across traditional political and regional groups, I would say the the traditional blocs to work cooperatively to find common ground. And and this was really critical to the result and, uh, and essential to the result. The United States is now looking to use the 2010 result as our point of departure for the 2015 review cycle. And our collective goal should be to build on that result while acknowledging that there are very real challenges that the NPT is facing at this time. And we, as a collective group of NPT parties, need to look at how we can deal with those more effectively than perhaps we did in 2010. So as we're preparing within the U.S. government for the PREPCOM, we've been focusing on a careful review of the action plan, and we are preparing um, our interventions for the various different discussions during the PREPCOM to um, report or provide information on the steps the U.S. has taken um, in, in the two years to implement the various actions in all three pillars. But we're also approaching the PREPCOM as an opportunity for all parties, not just the nuclear weapon states, but non-nuclear weapon states alike, to describe their efforts to implement the action plan. And we're looking forward to a comprehensive discussion and hopefully a reflection of the fact that all of the parties, or at least most of the parties, are taking the action plan as seriously as as we are. And then since the PREPCOM is in Vienna, we have really looked at this as a great opportunity to engage our Vienna missions and our IAEA experts more closely, and to do more to highlight the role of the IAEA and um, and the CTBTO in in the action plan, and particularly the, the IAEA with its safeguards and technical cooperation programs, because of the two two of the three pillars, when you read them, really require the action of our our folks in Vienna in order to carry out those uh, those goals. <laughs> And then last, in terms of preparations, uh, we have been, I certainly have been, since the review conference was over, continue to engage extensively with a very large number of NPT parties from all regional and political groups uh, to continue the conversation uh, about how we can strengthen this important treaty and move forward. And that uh, outreach and that diplomacy, I believe, is really critical. Um, These are conversations that have to take place Uh, forever. We can't just do them in the run-up to a meeting and so forth. We have to engage with countries on a continual and and persistent basis, and we need to be prepared to listen to other people as well as to share our own views with them. And and that, I think, also contributed uh, in large uh, measure to the the good atmosphere in, in 2010. So looking at the action plan, we joined consensus on the action plan because it was a realistic and balanced agenda that supported achievement of the NPT's basic provisions. And as I mentioned, we're now working on our presentations to the PREPCOM, uh, which will review what we've done, kind of on our summer vacation, um, to, uh, to, to uh, make progress towards various actions of the commitments that we made. And again, we're looking for others to come in with the same uh, reflection of a commitment. So on disarmament, let me just review very briefly, and and this will all be very familiar to this group, both in this room and and in London. Um, I was very gratified to see President Obama in Seoul at the Nuclear Security Summit last month um, underline the importance, again, that he attaches to sustained U.S. leadership towards a world without nuclear weapons. And his remarks, uh, if you haven't read them, are worth reading. Um, They're a very good kind of update on on where we are, and I think, confirms the very strong commitment of this president and this administration to this agenda that we all have been working to to carry out. He noted at that time the important progress that's been made with Russia under the New START Treaty, which when implemented will reduce U.S. and Russian deployed nuclear warheads to their lowest levels since the 1950s, and we are planning to have a side event uh, at the PREPCOM on New START implementation. He also drew attention to the changes in the Nuclear Posture Review that was from 2010. Um, Specifically, he emphasized that the U.S. will not develop new nuclear warheads or new military missions for existing nuclear weapons. And it's my personal opinion that the 2010 NPR, coming as it did so close to the start of the review conference, perhaps did not get the attention... That it um, it really merited, given um, the, the very important elements in that document, and we will be trying to draw more attention to that as well. Um, the U.S. has reduced and will seek to continue to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in its national security st- strategy, and our longstanding U.S. negative security assurance was updated to reflect a clear and unqualified commitment to NPT non-nuclear weapon state parties in compliance with their non-proliferation obligations. On the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, the U.S. administration has been engaging with the U.S. Senate on the CTBT, laying the groundwork for positive Senate reconsideration of the treaty. And I would just remind uh, the audience that the U.S. has not tested a nuclear explosive device since 1992, it'll be 20 years in September. And the NPR reiterated that the U.S. no longer requires nuclear explosive testing to ensure the safety and effectiveness of its remaining nuclear weapons. So what we need to do now is is ratify uh, our our signature, our our signed treaty. On fissile material, uh, the U.S. has not produced highly enriched uranium for weapons since 1964 or produced plutonium for weapons since 1989, and we've worked unilaterally and in cooperation with Russia to remove from U.S. defense stocks HEU and plutonium that could be used in nuclear weapons. In July of last year, the U.S. and Russia brought the Plutonium Management and Disposition Agreement and its 2006 and 2010 (laughs) protocols into force, and these commit each country to dispose of at least 34 metric tons of excess weapon-grade plutonium. And we remain committed to working with our partners to find a productive path forward on a fissile material cutoff treaty. Um, That has been a source of great frustration to us that we have not been able to get that going in Geneva over the last couple of years. And last but not least, the United States is actively engaged with its P-5 partners on a process of P-5 engagement consistent with Action 5 of the NPT Action Plan. You know, the U.S. and Russia have a long history of engaging on nuclear arms reduction doctrine and strategy, which can be usefully shared with the other P-5 members. And the P-5 have continued meeting and exchanging information on nuclear reductions and capabilities, verification and reporting, with the understanding that such engagement will lead to better understanding and communication. And this will lay a foundation for increased transparency and eventual multilateral disarmament work. And then finally, the US continues to lead in providing transparency about nuclear weapons. And and for those who followed the 2010 review conference, we did release uh, stockpile numbers going back 30 years. And the aggregate numbers uh, under the new START treaty were released last summer. And it is uh, the U.S. view that increased transparency among all NPT states, nuclear weapon states as well as non nuclear weapon states, will contribute to stability, and that can help create the conditions for future nuclear weapon reductions. Now, let me just mention, uh, talk a little bit about nonproliferation. Uh, support for the nonproliferation pillar really involves support for the IEA and its indispensable safeguard system. Uh, it also, and I would note that the safeguards really provide credible assurance that states are complying with their nuclear nonproliferation uh, obligations. The 2010 action plan called upon all states which haven't done so to conclude and bring into force comprehensive safeguards agreements and additional protocols. There's a handful of states that haven't completed the comprehensive safeguards agreements, and we're working to uh, to help them do that. Um, and the U.S., working with the IEA and partners in Vienna, is providing support to states that seek assistance uh, in that area, and particularly in concluding and implementing their additional protocols, which provide the IEA additional capabilities uh, to monitor and verify uh, compliance. At the moment, and this number was just updated I think this week, there are 115 states with additional protocols in force, and another 23 have signed the protocol but not yet brought them into force. So the numbers are growing, and, uh, and we're, we're very gratified with that. The action plan also underscored the importance of compliance with non-proliferation obligations. But let me just say, in my personal view is the language in the final document itself is understated, to say the least, given the challenge that non-compliance poses to the integrity of the NPT, and it fails to identify specific cases of noncompliance as was done in the past. That was uh, all that was possible, unfortunately, given the rule of consensus. But I think we need to be very mindful that the issue of compliance and noncompliance is one that really goes to the heart of this treaty. And we are encouraging NPT partners to, um, t- to look for ways to take this up a little bit more aggressively in the future. Um, we, w- we want our, our NPT partners to encourage compliance and to make it clear that noncompliance is, is not acceptable and we believe that the NPT parties have a responsibility to respond firmly to NPT violations, including those that involve abuse or misuse of technical assistance that states may have received under the auspices of NPT membership. Under nonproliferation, let me mention the issue of nuclear weapon-free zones, Um, We believe that such zones, when they're properly crafted, can provide valuable regional reinforcement to the global NPT. And some regions have used these zones as a vehicle to promote related issues, including nuclear safety and security and environmental integrity. So they really can be very very useful agreements. Now again, as this group of cognoscenti know, the Secretary of State announced at the 2010 Review Conference that the U.S. was sending the protocols to the African and the South Pacific Nuclear Weapon-Free Zone Treaty to the U.S. Senate for advice and consent to ratification, and this was done May 2nd of last year. And she further committed the U.S. to re with the states in Southeast and Central Asia in an effort to see if the issues that have prevented our signature on those protocols could be uh, addressed. Well, last year, the P5 and the state's parties to the Southeast Asian nuclear weapon-free zone, the Treaty of Bangkok, successfully addressed the issues that have prevented signature of the protocol to that treaty. And we are now working with partners to carry out the technical steps that will clear the way for, that, for our signature and the signature of the other P5 this year. That was a treaty that was on the shelf for 10 years. I call it a Lazarus moment, um, but it just shows that you can go back and, and uh, bring things back. And we're also engaged in, in fairly extensive consultations with Kazakhstan right now, who, who is representing the Central Asian states to the Central Asian nuclear-free zone, the Treaty of Semipalatinsk, and with the P5. And we are uh, considering carefully internally at the moment um, what are the options uh, available to overcome the obstacles to moving forward on that agreement. We, we ha- do not have a position on that issue uh, at the moment, but we are looking um, seriously at it. And finally, on peaceful uses, and I know, Mina, you didn't have this on your agenda, but again, we think this is a a key part of the the NPT and a key part of the nonproliferation regime. It's one of the big benefits of of a strong nonproliferation regime. Um, the, The 2010 Action Plan affirms the central role of the NPT in fostering the development of the peaceful uses of nuclear energy by providing a framework of confidence and cooperation within which those uses can take place. That's a quote from the the action plan. Now the U.S. has long been the single largest contributor to the I.E.A.'s technical cooperation programs, but to further underscore our support for this program, Secretary Clinton announced at the RevCon a five-year, $100 million peaceful uses initiative. Now the U.S. has pledged $50 million to what we're calling the PUI, a little odd, but I guess it could be worse, which is over and above our annual contribution to IAEA technical cooperation activities. Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, the Czech Republic, there are others. I don't have them all listed here. Several others have joined us in contributing to the PUI, and we are working hard to encourage others to contribute in order to reach the $100 million goal. Now, as some of you probably know, the PUI focuses on providing developing countries with training and equipment to apply nuclear technologies, particularly in the area of human health, and we're especially focused on the cancer treatment, which was a big uh, program in the IEA a couple years ago, Uh, food security, water resource management, and developing infrastructure for the safe and secure use of civil nuclear power. Since the initiative was announced two years ago, um, a little less than two years ago, the U.S. has already dispersed more than $18 million for IEA projects for which funding was previously unavailable, and these projects are benefiting more than 100 countries. Um, When I was in Vienna last September, I was really struck by, um, I had many, many bilaterals, and I was struck and really pleased at the number of countries that actually raised the PUI, these were mostly developing countries, who mentioned it voluntarily, I didn't have to raise it, And, um, and indicated how important they saw this initiative uh, and how they, they saw it as a reflection of support for the peaceful uses under the NPT. And so I, I think we've been using that as, a, as a, a marketing tool, too, for others, that we are getting credit for this. It is being appreciated. The IAEA has now embraced this program. It's the IAEA Peaceful Uses Initiative. Uh, but it's a very important program, and it's, it's dedicated to really important um, uh, areas. Finally, let me just talk about the role of the next generation, and then we'll open it up for questions. Um, you know, I, Erin and I have worked together for a long time and, um, I see her as part of the, the, next generation. And, uh, when I speak to groups and student groups, um, I'm always encouraging them to, uh, get informed about these issues. Um, you know, if you can work in the area and work on these issues, but, but get informed, be interested and let your voice be know, be known. And I think that engagement by young people in the international nonproliferation regime, national security issues, but certainly in WMD proliferation, has really grown in recent years, and this is terribly important. These issues, they need your attention, and your governments need your support and your active engagement on these issues. Um, I wish I could say we were gonna get it all fixed before some of us retire, but we're not, and there's, this, is, uh, this is the full JOBS Act. Um, I have some statistics that Erin gave me that during 2004, 2009 NPT meetings, Um, There were estimates of the youth participation, defined as under 30, I can't even remember those days, included anywhere between 20 to 80 accredited NGO representatives for each meeting to include the PREPCOMs and the uh, the 2005 Review Conference. And then for the 2010 Review Conference, it was estimated that there were approximately 450 accredited uh, youth, again under 30, um, from 16 NGOs uh, out of a total of 2,000. Um, Since the 2010 Review Conference, there's been a number of new NGOs and networks created to engage students and young professionals, and of course, INENS is is a real model for this. Mina and and you and your your colleagues deserve a lot of credit, as well as the European Youth Delegation sponsored by the EU, and we understand that that all of these groups are going to participate actively in the 2012 PREPCOM, and we look forward to, uh, to, to talking to you when we're in Vienna. Um, At the State Department, we've also initiated our own efforts to engage with the next generation of nonproliferation specialists, and this has really been an initiative of our Strategic Communications Office. We have Erin and Margot Squire, who are here. Since 2009, we've hosted an annual conference, which we're calling Generation Prague, which I think is really cool, Um, and that is focused on the role of young people in fulfilling President Obama's vision of a world without nuclear weapons. This year, we're going to host this event on June 4th and we're welcoming participation of, of folks here and, and elsewhere. So achieving the vision that President Obama set out in Prague and that he, and he recently um, um, reinforced in, in Seoul uh, of strengthening the NPT, moving down the, the spectrum of, of nuclear disarmament towards elimination of nuclear weapons, it's going to take time, and we need to be very realistic. Um, I sometimes find in these meetings I'm you know, having to bite my tongue so I don't, blurt out, you know, let's get real and deal with the real world. Um, and therefore, it's really incumbent that the next generation um, take some responsibility for achieving these goals because it is going to take time and it's going to be on your watch and maybe even beyond. We've been very encouraged by the enthusiasm of the, the Prague generation to take up these challenges. And as I said in the, you know, before, that gives me a lot of comfort to know that there is so much enthusiasm and, and intellect um, that is is being rallied to uh, to take these issues on in in the future. So let me end there um, after running through my my, uh, my outline, and I'm happy to take any questions.
0: Thanks, Susan. I think that was a a really comprehensive uh, but still detailed uh, tour of all of the the NPT issues and and even more. Um, uh, So the way this will work is we'll sort of alternate. I'll start by asking you a question. We'll take a couple from London, then a couple here, and we'll we'll alternate um, that way. Uh, I would remind everybody to please uh, state your name uh, so that we know who you are, particularly for folks in London who we can sort of see you but we're not with you. Um, and uh, polemics are, are, are welcome as long as they're short. Questions are encouraged. <laughs> uh, so maybe I can start, Susan. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit of about the P5 engagement process that's uh, been encouraged in the action plan. Uh, before the review conference, there was actually a, a P5 statement that was done. I, I, was that the first time that was done? I, I don't know that there was one in 2005. Um, but in any case, I think it's, you know, it's clear that there's a little bit more of a P5 process going on now. Yeah. Uh, there was a meeting uh, that the French hosted this last year. Could you explain a little bit more about how that process is going and, and you know, what some of the, the concrete outcomes might be and what also some of the hurdles are?
2: All right. Well, thanks. That's a great question. Um, I don't know if there was a P5 statement in 2005. I had, I, I had nothing to do with 2005. Um, there uh, uh, we did uh, negotiate a, a joint P5 statement to the 2010 Review Conference and uh, uh, that has been something we've done in the past. We were able to do that again to show uh, P5 unity on a range of issues um, and, uh, and, and reflect the agreement. Uh, in 2009, the, the, the British government hosted uh, a meeting in London in September of 2009 that brought the P5 together in discussions on confidence building and verification transparency measures. I was able to participate in that conference because we had meetings on the side on the NPT review conference. Uh, but it was quite an effective meeting, bringing in experts from the different governments, in our case from the Department of Energy Labs and so forth, to have fairly technical discussions and briefings. Um, that led to uh, our decision at the review conference um, to, for this Action 5, which called on the P5 to engage on a, on a series of, of items but that would bring the P5 together in a conversation on issues that, frankly, as I said, the P5 haven't engaged in as a group. It's been the U.S. and Russians, and and now expanding us to to talk about some of these uh, these issues. Um, The French, after the review conference, the French uh, offered to host the first P5 conference following the review conference, and that was held last year, Uh, and the U.S. will be hosting the conference this year. The dates have not been uh, set yet, but uh, we're planning on that already. Um, there was a press release out of that, um, the French meeting. There was a very brief press release out of the London meeting. Uh, and there was a, um, a public statement out of the, France, uh, the meeting in France that detailed some of the things that we were doing, and I don't have it with me at the moment. For obvious reasons, uh, these conf- conversations are um, largely confidential. Uh, and they are confidential at the request of a number of the P5 who would prefer to have these discussions you know, outside of the public view. Uh, but it did describe some of the achievements, agreements to start set up working groups and various things, and I can tell you that progress is being made um, in, in implementing those decisions and following up on those, uh, on those meetings, and that the next meeting will carry, attempt to carry the ball further. Um, our, the U.S. goal was to institutionalize a regular process of P-5 engagement on these issues, uh, as I say, to build this foundation of confidence and understanding so that we can move to the next levels. The President said in Prague, the U.S. and the Russians need to work on uh, reducing their numbers further to get down to levels, but then he envisions a time where those numbers will be at a level that we can then multilateralize the disarmament process, and we're, we're now laying the groundwork for that. Good.
0: Mina, you want to take a couple of questions from London?
2: Um, sure.
3: Go
4: ahead. Sure. Uh, start off.
3: Uh, Chris sure. from King's College, London. Ambassador uh, Burke, you mentioned the uh, crucial role the IA plays uh, in the two pillars of non-proliferation and peaceful use. Uh, I was wondering whether you saw a greater future role for the agency uh, in the third pillar of disarmament. Uh, there was a trilateral technical study completed in the early 2000s uh, between the agency, Russia, and the United States on verifying nuclear warhead dismantlement. I wondered whether you, an initiative like this uh, might be something uh, that the U.S. would consider uh revisiting in
2: the future. Well, I, I know there have been discussions uh, of this, and um, uh, I, I, don't know, I, I don't know whether the U.S. would consider it. I think at the moment, you know, we're at a stage where we and the Russians are, are, are working on nuclear reductions, and, and uh, the President's made it clear what we would like to see the next phase of, of our nuclear arms reductions with Russia in cover. And, and the verification for that is, is, is going to be bilateral verification. But as I mentioned on the plutonium disposition agreement, I mean we are looking at um, some of these, uh, these agreements that involve fissile material and so forth. Uh, do, do involve the IEA. Uh, I just think we're not at a stage now where um, we're looking at the IEA to, to verify disarmament. But I, I appreciate that there is a lot of interest in that. I hear about that. Sorry. Jenny. Hi, Jenny Nielsen, Park. Um, in your recent outreach with um, the non-nuclear weapon states, particularly the NAM states, um, could you provide us with an overview of atmospherics um, leading up to the 2012 uh, PREPCOM? And also, um, in your recent dialogue with the Middle East states, to what extent are they linking the 2012 WMD Free Zone conference to the 2015 MPT review process? Okay, great to see you, Jenny, <laughs> um, over, over, the, over the line. Um, on the outreach, I, I, let me just say, generally, in, in my conversations with, uh, um, with other MPT parties, um, especially non-nuclear weapon states, I, I get a general sense that uh, there is a very strong desire to sort of uh, sustain the mood, um, that uh, with, without exception, uh, uh, countries and, and re- government representatives Uh, Believe that 2010 did represent um, uh, a positive step, and it was a positive move and a good outcome. And uh, we've all been talking about how we can build on that result and and continue to um, operate. uh, I would say not as business as usual, but as business as we saw in in 2010. And so that kind of commitment to 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 keep the you know stay the course, if you will, I think is a really uh, is a really positive uh, element. But. I would also say that uh, none of us, no one that I've talked to, and certainly not in the U.S., is under any illusions that this is going to be easy. Uh, but at least if we're all committed to, to a general approach, I think that's a good idea. Um, on the Middle East, I'm not personally involved in the Middle East issue, um, uh, but I would say that uh, the Middle East has been a, uh, a central element in NPT discussions since 1995, and um, there's no reason to believe that that will not continue to be the case.
0: Daryl?
3: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Daryl Kimball with the Arms Control Association. Investor um, Burke, because you're so good at what you do, I'm going to ask a hard question. Um, okay. uh, what might be considered a hard question. You mentioned the importance of compliance and as a priority for the United States in going through this uh, review process. Um, my question is, as the United States views that, that part of the review – does that apply to articles one, two, three, four, and six alike? And I ask that because I mean there are questions that have come up over time about um, uh, indirect support for nuclear weapons programs. Um, for instance, through technical cooperation with non-NPT states parties like Pakistan through the IAEA, um, have you know that has that technical assistance been used, for instance, to uh, support their uh, their weapons program, because the assistance was technically um, uh, uh, focused on projects that have dual use, like their heavy water reactor, uranium mining, et cetera. So, I mean, as the United States views this, does it apply to all of these core NPT commitments? And specifically <laughs> on Pakistan, is this something that the United States has looked into, has a view about uh, regarding the past technical cooperation um, and the financial support by the U.S. and the IAEA to Pakistan for those those activities? Uh,
2: well, you know, I, I know, I think you and I have had exchanges on this issue before. I, I would say on compliance, you know, yeah, when, when we talk about compliance, it's got to be compliance with all the aspects of the, the treaty, all right? And, and, and the U.S., and the nuclear weapon states, um, you know, get accused of not complying with, you know, uh, Article 6. Um, you know, I, 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 can, I don't agree with that. And I think the president has, has laid out an agenda that makes it very clear he's very committed to the NPT and to doing what he can to do this. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do an advertisement for James Acton here. But uh, I, I mentioned that uh, he has a new, he has an, and this is not a U.S. government um, endorsement of the article, but I have shared it with a number of colleagues, including in the Pentagon. Uh, he wrote a piece in the, in the Washington Quarterly rec- uh, just recently that I saw um, that talks about the, some of the, the, the difficulties for disarmament. And I would commend it to your attention. Scott Sagan's article a couple years ago in Daedalus on shared responsibilities is also important too. I mean, we need to deal with the real world. Uh, I think right now the U.S. is firmly committed and is making every effort to move the ball forward. And if we could achieve the elements of the Prague agenda, I think we would be in a much better place to then go the next, the next round. So compliance on all the things. We're not suggesting we don't have to comply, and others do. In the NPT context, what we're really focusing on is NPT parties in compliance with their obligations. Are they, are they doing what they need to do to provide assurance uh, on the non-nuclear weapon states that their activities are exclusively for peaceful purposes. Iran, for example, you know, has not satisfied that uh, that um, requirement uh, in the minds of, of most. Um, discussions on the IAEA in Pakistan, I have to say, haven't come up, and I think because Pakistan's not an NPT party. Um, but, you know, and, I, and we tend to focus on just the, the groups that are, you know, and, and, and I would also say, Indian and Pakistan don't get a lot of attention in the NPT review conference. Um, I'm not gonna say whether that's a good or a bad thing, but they tend not to get the same attention as, as some other non-parties.
3: I, I, think I raise that because yeah. NPT parties have an obligation under Article One not to provide assistance in any way to right. any state, whether they're in the NPT or outside the NPT, and so they have an obligation. To assure that their assistance to any party is not being used for weapons purposes, so that's not an Article Six issue. It's not an Article Two II or Three issue. It's an Article One issue. So I, I raise that because it's not something that often comes up, and I'm just wondering whether that philosophically is within the scope of what you're talking about when you're, you raise the question of compliance.
2: Um, I, I have to say, when I think about this in the NPT context, I, I haven't thought about it in that way. But I'll definitely look into that issue.
0: Uh, please.
4: My name is Bill Root. I've been involved in export control since 1964. Uh, when COCOM was first established in 1950, there was a single a, a multilateral agency for munitions for dual use and for atomic energy items. Over the years, this has become atomized. Uh, there's a separate regime now for uh, Nuclear Suppliers Group and for the Zanger and for missiles, and in the U.S. it's, it's even worse than that. There are many different agencies involved. Uh, the President has, uh, for the first time in, in decades uh, at that level, uh, addressed the export control issue and in, in export control reform, and Secretary Gates took the lead. And It uh, is abbreviated into four singles, a single list, a single agency for this, and a single agency for that. Uh, Unfortunately, the details to put that into effect have seemed to uh, accept the the, uh, skepticism that we could ever achieve any of those singles. I was wondering if, uh, in, in, in terms of compliance, it is extremely difficult for our exporters to comply with this multiplicity of different approaches. And th- we were welcoming the idea of the four singles, but wondering if, if we'll ever get there.
2: Well, um, I appreciate your question, um, and I, I have to say that uh, I am not enough uh, of an expert, and certainly in the last several years have had really not much to do with, had nothing to do with that issue, to be able to offer you a competent answer. Um, I mean, I take your point. I understand your concern, but I'm not sure that I can answer it um, in any way that would be authoritative. I'm sorry.
0: Fair enough. (laughs) Back to London.
1: Right. Um, I'll take this time then to um, to maybe feed in a little bit about what we've been discussing here. And um, there were a few questions that came up, and uh, and perhaps um, Ambassador Burke would like to comment on on some of those. Um, one of the issues was um, on engaging non, non-nuclear weapon states and um, and their role and what role they can play in enhan- enhancing confidence-building measures that will help feed into the disarmament. Um, Agenda as well. So I wanted to um, to ask Ambassador Burke um, on her views on that, and um, and secondly on um, on what can be done on progress relating to the um, to India, Pakistan, and Israel in terms of um, should the Solomon be separately discussed outside um, the um, the P5 discussions that are taking place at the moment, or whether um, it should be um, a broader meeting to bring them in as well.
2: Well, Mina, that's a great question. And on the non-nuclear weapon states, and I, I wish I'd refresh my memory here, this was Scott Sagan's article on Daedalus a couple years ago on shared responsibilities. He really talks a lot in that article about the things that non-nuclear weapon states can do to contribute to security. But I think when we, we talk about this, um, number one, it's um, you know meeting their responsibilities in terms of uh, safeguards, um, uh, Export controls, whatever the re- requirements are, um, supporting the IEA both politically and through other, and, and through uh, you know, financial and other means. Um, I think a lot of the, the issues, the, the real the problems that kind of plague the regime are in, re- in, in regions where there's instability and insecurity. And, and these are areas where regional states and non nuclear weapon states need to contribute to s- some basic security and confidence building. In some of these regions, in order to be, have a better, um, uh, be better able to to handle the WMD piece of it, and so I, I think that that's that's part of it. And then I'll come back to compliance. Um, again, uh, the issue of compliance, whatever compliance we're talking about, it's not it's not a P5 issue alone. It's not a U.S. issue alone. It's not a P5 issue. These are issues that all the non-nuclear weapon states could contribute to, um, you know, greater encouragement of compliance. So those are just a few. I, um, I, I, I do think that as you look through the action plan, there are a number of different actions uh, that uh, non-nuclear weapon states could take. Uh, the Article 4, for example, it talks about promoting the fullest possible um, access to the peaceful uses of nuclear energy. Well, it's not it, it, Article 4, and I, I hear this occasionally and sometimes often, that this Article 4 is an obligation on the, on the nuclear weapon states. Well, it's not an obligation on the nuclear weapon states. It's an obligation on all parties, or it's an obligation for all parties to facilitate the fullest access. So I think that's another area where non-nuclear weapon states can contribute and are contributing to ensuring that uh, countries, especially in the developing world, do have access to the peaceful uses of nuclear energy. So there are are a number of provisions in the treaty that um, commonly get ascribed as being (coughs) obligations only for the, the nuclear weapon states, and they really are to all. Um, In the Action Plan, for example, there's an Action 20 that calls on all states to report. And uh, there's an Action 21 that calls on the nuclear weapon states to report. Um, I've heard Action 20 uh, interpreted by some as, well, that really means the nuclear weapon states, too. So I I think, again, um, if the health and and vitality and um, durability of the NPT is up to just the nuclear weapon states and and the other 184 parties, see themselves as having no particular role, uh, I think we're in trouble. Um, on India, Pakistan, and Israel, um, you know, that, uh, the, the issue, uh, I, I, don't, I don't have a comment or a view on, on the disarmament process. To my mind, the FMCT negotiations, if we could ever get them going in Geneva, is the best opportunity to begin to bring, bring together countries in the NPT and out of the NPT uh, in, in a discussion on a, of a negotiation that will uh, uh, significantly <laughs> enhance the, the, the move towards disarmament. And so uh, for, you know, for us, and, and certainly the, the way I would look at it, if you want to bring in the states that are outside the treaty into a real um, you know, arms control and nonproliferation agreement, the FMCT would be the way to do it. And we have not given up trying to break the deadlock on that. We're still working hard to try to find a way to get that thing going. But um, I know that most of you know where the obstacles are, and uh, they aren't NPT parties.
0: If I could just follow up on the FMCT question. You know, there's been some discussion, rumor for some time now of – Some might even characterize it as a threat to move that discussion out of Geneva. Um, Can you give us a sense about where things are at uh, at this point?
2: Well, uh, you know, um, there are proposals being made, and they're not being made by the U.S. uh, to move this out. And these are being made by other countries that would like to see this negotiation done. Now, I think... Um, our view is that the CD is the best place to do that, and we're working hard to, uh, to try to, to, to find a way to get it unhooked so that we can, can go. Um, but we, there are uh, proposals being made by some other key uh, uh, non-nuclear weapon states in the, um, um, in the G-77 and others to move it to the UN or elsewhere, and uh, we'll have to see where it goes. So the frustration is building across the board. And, uh, you know, we are trying to see what we can do to just get it started in a way that would, you know, produce a meaningful negotiation and a meaningful treaty. And, and we are prepared. As I said, we, we have not been producing fissile material for many, many years. Uh, and the president's commitment is to make that a legal commitment and to uh, to accept verification. This is a pretty big deal. And, um, you know, it would be great to get it done. So,
0: Paul, did you have a
5: question?
6: I guess I, I, first of all, it's very nice to see you here and, and also Aaron and <clears throat> all of our colleagues in your shop back in state. The, um, I had another tough question, I guess, following up on Daryl's uh, statement. You know, the, the NPT and the whole non-nuclear non-proliferation regime is still very much perceived as a uh, discriminatory regime, particularly by the non-nuclear parties. And one of the ways we've, we obviously know we can help to overcome that is to make major steps forward, particularly in Russia and the United States and as you've said, uh, bring down the the nuclear weapons stockpiles. Um, my question is, you know, what what's progress going to be like? Are you optimistic on CTBT ratification in the next year or two, particularly after the elections this year? I asked Rose of this too. We, Rose and I had conversations on this. What did she
2: say? <clears throat> she
6: said, uh, "I'll I'll I'll wait until next year to see." <laughs> she okay. wasn't. She actually was was not at all uh, very optimistic during an election year like this. Um, secondly. Uh, you know, deeper cuts in nuclear weapons uh, beyond the New START Treaty, which we all know is a great step forward, but still inadequate in the eyes of many of the NPT states' parties. Um, and thirdly, how about how about tactical nuclear weapons? I mean, there's, there's an issue I think that's ripe for, for positive movement. Um, are we going to see some sort of NATO agreement uh, that we can indeed move these out of Europe and begin to? Uh, rid the world of forward-deployed tactical nuclear weapons. I think it would be a great step forward for the next five-year review. And my name is Paul Walker with the Global Green USA. Thanks, to okay.
2: Um These are all great questions, and, uh, uh, you know, I have to uh, – um, they're, they're all great questions that I can't answer. Um, I think in an election year, uh, you know, when, when I get asked about some of these things by uh, my foreign partners, um, you know, I, uh, most, most folks understand that in an election year – uh, these kinds of things are, are very difficult, and for all sorts of reasons, we're all preoccupied with other things. And, and, and I, I couldn't possibly uh, speculate. It, it really will depend on, you know, next year. I mean, what happens? What are we, we dealing with? Um, I, I don't think there's, there's no reduction in, in the commitment of this administration to move forward on these issues. So, you know, we'll have to wait for next year on that. Same way with deeper cuts, I think, and the same way with, with TAC nukes. Um, you know, the, the president, you know, said it in Prague that, you know, the first phase and the next phase he wants to bring in the non-strategic nuclear weapons. So we've been on the record for, for wanting to do that. Um, and, um, you know, it's on the record how that's going to be tough. And uh, I, I, can't, I can't possibly speculate on what NATO will do either. So, you know, what we have out there is what the administration is committed to and, what it, and, and how it has sketched out the agenda for the future. Um, and, you know, time will tell. I think it's a great agenda, and I, I hope we'll have an opportunity to to pursue it and to make more achievements before 2015. But I, I couldn't speculate right now.
5: So, gentlemen, there. Uh, I'm Carlton Stoiber with the uh, International Nuclear Law Association. This is a softball question for you. Uh,
2: Thank you, Carl.
5: Uh, <laughs> You've mentioned the NPT, but you haven't mentioned another uh, relatively important international uh, binding uh, agreement uh, on nuclear nonproliferation, which is uh, UN Security Council 1540. And that binds all UN member states, and there are binding commitments in that. How do you see the relationship uh, between the NPT review conference process and what is going on or might go on with the 1540 committee uh, and the Security Council?
2: But Carl doesn't do softball questions, but um, I, uh, uh, let me let me answer that this way um, as as i 've been you know continuing to consult with you know foreign partners and people now that I've gotten to know quite well so that we can have very you know we can have real conversations you know no talking points um, when we've talked about you know implementing the action plan and and that you know with Everybody can, everybody can contribute to this. It's not just up to the P5 to do all of these things. And as asking, you know, well, well, there are things you could do. What has come up is 1540. For some countries, um, all of a sudden, the light bulb goes on, and they're like, well, we're implementing 1540. Uh, and Exactly. Okay, that's good. Why don't you come to the PREPCOM prepared to talk about what you're doing To carry out the 1540 mandate in your area because all of these, you know, these (coughs) Security Council resolutions and various things. This all makes up the global nonproliferation architecture, if you will. You know, we like to say the NPT is the cornerstone, but there are all of these other things that we've built up as an international community over the last, you know, 40, 40 50 years. The IEA, it's different programs, the safeguards, additional protocol, 1540. So um, that now, I, that caused me to go back, because I, I was in the nonproliferation bureau when 1540 was first negotiated, um, and uh, that caused me to go back and kind of review it and get briefed up on it and say, oh, yes, okay, this is relevant, and the activities that countries are carrying out in support of that mandate, yes, you should draw attention to that because this is all contributing to this larger good and strengthening regime. So I don't know that 1540 itself, I don't think there's a segment on it, but we've now um, incorporated the 1540 uh, mission into, you know, or thinking about it. And, and I do raise it with other countries too. When they're a little stymied on thinking about, well, what can we do? Well, you remember 1540, do that. So it, um, I think some of it's just connecting the dots and helping other people connect the dots. And in this case, some uh, a foreign official connected the dots for me.
0: Uh, London, more questions? <laughs> Hi, uh, Ambassador. My name is Matthew Harries. I'm from um, King's College, London. Um, My question is is that uh, um, you talked about the fact that the language on compliance in the 2010 final document is is fairly moderate. Um, You also talked about your occasional desire to shout at people to get real um, and to deal with the real world. Um, what confidence do you have that the NPT review process is capable of dealing with real-world problems? And in, in that context, what would you like to see come out of, of this PREP-COM? What would be a
6: useful uh, outcome?
2: Uh, all right. Well, yeah, Matthew, it is good to see. You. We met in Washington, didn't we? Yeah. Right. Um, well, you know, um, first of all, out of this PREP-COM, uh, the, one, the one nice thing about this PREP-COM is nothing has to come out of it so i 'm pretty relaxed actually <laughs> and, um, You know the, the prepcom doesn 't uh, you know we don't we don 't have to produce a document. The chairman has made it clear he 's going to produce a report, but we don 't have to negotiate a document so that 's one one relief um, I think what what uh, what we 'd like to see come out of the prepcom uh, is what i 've said before um, you, you know this will be an opportunity to to determine whether or not most of the other parties are coming in with you know prepared to really Kind of, you know, sustain the mood, continue to 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 want to collaborate and to cooperate, um, have a good comprehensive discussion about what everybody's been doing since 2010 to um, to you know keep the faith on the action plan and to carry it out, and uh, you know we'll know when we hear the statements, you know whether or not you know we, we do have that mood and whether people are similarly committed. Um, you know, I, I think for the, you know, we need to look at this It's the first of a series of PREPCOMs, you know, it is only the first PREPCOM. Things will will build up over the time leading to 2015. Uh, but it would also be good, I think, to, if countries um, indicated their desire to, uh, to or, or the importance they attach to full compliance with the treaty. I mean, again, these are just things that you would hear in statements. There's not any written product or, or that sort of thing that we would be uh, be looking to do. And and I, again, it's, you know, I understand the limits of consensus. And I think when you you look at consensus, you know, a lot of, you know, we've been engaged in this debate. Is it a glass, the the final document, a glass half full or a glass half empty? Well, it depends on your perspective. I think it's a glass half full, uh, without a doubt. But if you're negotiating a, a document and you want consensus with, I think there were 172 countries that showed up at the meeting, um, you know, it, it's, let's get real. You can't. Everybody can't get everything in there that they want. <laughs> you know, you get you get the common. You know, you get the, the common ground. So, um, but I do think on compliance the parties' um, their unwillingness or maybe conflict-averse or you know whatever. I think we need to, to address that as a real issue that we need to care about. And and I think when it comes to compliance, the, the nuclear weapon states' compliance seems to be um, fair fair game in the discussion on whether or not the P-5 are complying. There's no problem with that. But when it comes to compliance by other states that aren't not nuclear weapon states, then that seems to be one that that people are hesitant to talk about. And uh, I just think whether it's discriminatory, non-discriminatory, it's a product of its time. Um, You know, I continue to believe that we uh, it stood the test of time, and I think if we tried to recreate the NPT today, we couldn't do it. So I, I like to... I think the NPT is too big to fail and we just have to find a way to work within the framework.
0: Another question from London?
1: I think we'll head back to uh, to D.C.
0: Okay, good. So you had a question, ma'am?
7: Thank you. Uh, Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is Tuya. I am a currently a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. I am Can you speak
0: a little louder, please? Yeah,
7: I, my name is Tuya. I am a currently a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, originally from Mongolia. And um, I wanted to ask about the uh, – the, um, Mongolia, as you know, uh, has what we call a nuclear weapon-free status, which oh. is not uh, a full-fledged uh, nuclear weapons-free zone, apparently. But then um, I uh, understand uh, there was a statement made back in 2010 regarding this status by the U.S. which said that the, that the U.S. Will, be, will continue to engage with Mongolia on the ways in which it could uh, 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 consult and cooperate with Mongolia on, uh, on what is called institutionalizing this status. And has there been any engagement uh, uh, between the... Uh, Mongolia and the U.S. and other P- the P5 uh, in the period since. And my uh, second related question, I guess, would be about the um, there have been press reports recently uh, regarding the uh, the uh, the interest of the government of Mongolia to build a nuclear power plant, something like that, in Mongolia, and um, uh, and end of the uh, non-negligible uranium resources that the country has apparently discovered, and so. My question is, uh, would you see any um, uh, potential proliferation risk if Mongolia develops this nuclear energy uh, uh, a policy and pursues that policy? Thank you.
2: OK, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and, in, in response to your question, have there been consultations, I just t- talked to your ambassador in, in Vienna uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was there. Um, and I, I meet with him every time I'm in Vienna. And uh, we are email buddies, so uh, we're in we're in regular contact on this issue. And uh, the you know the U.S. has now for the last year we've been trying to we've we've been in touch with him very regularly. I've met with your uh, ambassador also in um, in Geneva, uh, looking at what we could do uh, to to respond to uh, this Mongolian desire. There was a statement in 2000 that the P5 issued. And that's sort of the the baseline, um, and we're looking at what else we can do uh, that is non not legal. We're not we don't we're not looking at a legal uh, agreement. We can, we're not doing that. But what kind of a political statement? Um, and we've been discussing this with the with the P5. And I think your ambassador in, in Mongolia now has been reaching out. I, when I talked to him recently, um, I asked him, "Are you talking to the other P5 or only us?" And he he said, "Well, it was only us." And I said, well, "Why don't you talk to the others?" <laughs> so. So that we're we're seeing what we can do. We're we're we've got it under, uh, you know, we've got it under review, and uh, we're in regular contact on the power reactor. I don't I don't know. Um, I I can't comment on that. I I, I would just say Mongolia has, um, you know, strong and excellent non-proliferation credentials, and and is a a party uh, a non-nuclear weapon state party the NPT in good standing, and and um, I think that's a, a fundamental criteria. But beyond that, I I don't have any comments on on your uh, power plans.
0: Sir.
8: Dr. Art Donner, uh, it wasn't too long ago we had an event here uh, on (coughs) Scotland's possible succession from the UK with their nuclear weapons all being in Scotland. The problem that would be for the UK in the unlikely event it happened. So my question is, would the U.S. welcome the U.K. leaving the nuclear club and joining the non-nuclear nations?
2: Um, <laughs> London? London. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me just say, and then I'll kick it to London, Is Josh. There, uh, you know, uh, li- listen. The United States and the United Kingdom are the, the closest allies, and uh, I, you know, I'm I, I I'm not going to answer that question. But uh,
0: yeah. what was it you were saying, Susan, about not wanting to get in trouble towards the end of yeah, your, uh, towards the end of my career?
2: No, I I, I can't answer that question. And uh, um, you know, I, I would just say that our relationship is 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 broad and deep on 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 all issues, and including these, and they've been an an, an incredible. Um, uh, an essential and partner, certainly in this NPT business, I have to say, my uh, British colleagues uh, have just been um, have been rocks in, in all this, and rock stars too. you can pass it pass it along uh,
8: Thank you. Uh, George Dragnich with uh, North court Limited, which is a new nuclear energy insurance firm out of London. Uh, The question I have is on reprocessing of nuclear fuel. Uh, From an environmental perspective, and we're talking civil uses, it's very attractive because it dramatically reduces the amount of waste at the end when it can't be reprocessed anymore. But, of course, the problems I think everybody here knows is that at every step in the reprocessing of used nuclear fuel, you bring it closer to weapons-grade plutonium And so the NPT restrictions have meant that the United States does not reprocess. The problem, of course, is that everyone else does. And our interlocutors in London would know that the U.K. is one of the global leaders. In fact, all of the nuclear fuel used and reprocessed in Japan originates in the U.K. So that the severe restrictions that President Jimmy Carter imposed in the 1970s are basically null and void because... It has no effect globally because everybody else reprocesses, and I know that the U.S. position is evolving on this. There is a a review of this. I, I wonder if you might address that, Ambassador Perk. Thank you.
2: Well, I'm not going to address the review, but I would I would kind of question your assertion that everyone else does. I'm not so sure that's true, and I, there may be others in, in the room that are more well, the expert. Large, the the large players. You, you know, yeah. Know. Well, I, uh, you know, I I think you said right. at the beginning. Yeah, well, you, you said at the beginning, you know, reprocessing is, is one of those technologies that, you know, I, I always get a little itchy when I hear people say that enrichment and reprocessing are not sensitive technologies. I'm not a physicist, but I do know that the end, end product of those processes is material that could be used for peaceful purposes or non-peaceful purposes, and so it makes sense to, uh, uh, to have some controls over them. Um, I'm not really familiar with the review on this issue, but I I I, just—I even the big players—that in itself does not translate it to everyone else, does it? Um, And I do think that you know, as we talk about multilateralizing the fuel cycle in Vienna, which is what we're engaged in, it's a really interesting idea. That some of us, and some of my colleagues here, Carl and Dean Rust and others, uh, go back. This goes back to the 70s. It wasn't a—it wasn't time then, but now we're talking about trying to multilateralize and internationalize these kinds of activities. And that's being done for economic reasons, but also for non reasons. So,
0: Tristan. Good morning, Ambassador. Tristan Volpe, George Washington University. I'd like to stick with the fuel cycle for a second. I think as the current dynamics in the Middle East demonstrates, the spread of latent nuclear technology, specifically the nuclear fuel cycle, generates a severe challenge um, for the non-proliferation regime. What concrete steps can we take today to strengthen the MPG, MPT regime to deal with this uh, very tricky issue? Thank you.
2: Well, I think what we're, you know, again, I'll go back to one of the initiatives now that has gained traction in Vienna is the idea of multilateralizing the fuel cycle um, for exactly that reason, and, uh, and, and also for the economics of this. Um, I think, you know, these are national, you know, decisions to pursue these activities, but if there could be a viable alternative instead of, you know, creating your own fuel cycle um, to find viable economic alternatives to that, that would be the the way to go. The other thing is I'm not a technical person and I'm not a fuel cycle person, although I do know the, the back end from the front end. Uh, In all of this discussion, and when I first came back in 2009 to look at this and was reading through all the reports and that kind of thing, nowhere is there any acknowledgement of the the challenges of dealing with the back end of the fuel cycle. Everybody's talking about the sexy front end of enrichment reprocessing. Now, again, I'm not the the scientist, but, you know, I know that at the end, you know, you've got got a big problem, and we have that in our our country as well. We don't know what to do with, with spent fuel and waste and that sort of thing. And, and I would just say, as a non-technical person looking at this, I think they're missing a big piece of this, uh, and that they need to look at the whole thing. Um, I had the occasion to be at a dinner with Secretary Chu. I'm not dropping names, but it was pretty cool. And, uh, this, and this issue came up. Um, this was in Vienna. This issue came up about the back end, you know, and, and I, he made a comment. Yeah, well, we can tell him about the back end. So I, I do think as we talk about this again, some of this, these discussions, and this, this is Susan Burke saying, we're, we're talking about these at this sort of high political level. We need to bring them down to ground and turn them over. You know, don't do this at home. Leave this to the experts. Let the experts talk about some of these things. So I know it's political. I mean, I'm not dismissing that. But then I think at some point you've got to bring it down to ground and, and figure out what are we doing with this. And, and that's the one thing I, when I look at the enrichment reprocessing debate, I'm concerned that there is not uh, – doesn't seem to be much attention being given to. After you build all this stuff, what do you do with all the stuff that pops out at the other end that you can't use? And I'm not sure reprocessing is the only answer to that. So I leave it to other people much more uh, informed than I am on that.
0: Other questions here in Washington? Uh, I had a a follow-up question, Susan. Um, Do you like to wager? Do you like to bet?
2: No. I, I just say, if I were a betting person, I would bet, but no, I don't. So if you
0: were a betting person, yeah. uh, yeah. fast-forwarding to 2015, you know, coming out of the 2010 review conference where yeah. things really sort of came down to the last day and we weren't sure whether there was a final document or not, and the yeah. end there was. Um, you know, how, how do you feel about this review cycle going forward? Um, do, you, do you think that in 2015 there will be a final document? What do you think that document might
2: say? Okay, um, I wouldn't even say if I were a betting person. Um, I I think that, um, and I'm not the only one that has this view, I think 2015 is more of a challenge than 2010, okay, and and for these reasons. Um, If you're following on uh, the heels of a conference that is widely seen as not being very successful to be charitable, then you can say you can only go up. So that coming into this, I look back and, and as I talked to uh, my foreign partners and, and got their perspective on it, I thought, OK, we can only go up. And in fact, we did. But now having achieved uh, you know, a pretty uh, decent outcome you know, with consensus and had a very good discussion and, and created a mood that was very collaborative um, and overcome some tough issues that had not been resolved in the past, we're at the bar is higher. So we're going to have to jump higher in 2015. So that's, that's one big challenge. Um, beyond that, there, there are a number of things that are you know, kind of percolating or, not per, or maybe they're boiling. Um, and we don't know what the, uh, the punchline is. And so it's hard to, and I, and I wouldn't even begin to predict. So I think we have to watch all the things that are going on, these developments that could impact in various ways. Um, but I'm really focused on taking it one meeting at a time, Um, You know, building on the result, uh, I am a uh, a firm believer that if we need to engage um, consistently and regularly with our foreign partners, we need to keep these lines of communication open um, and we need to have real conversations because we are not going to be able to uh, deliver a result on our own. The P5 aren't going to be able to deliver it on our own. We have to do this as a group. And I think the more we, the more we encourage um, our partners to see this as a collective effort in which we are all stakeholders, and it's not up to one state or group of states to sort of do this. We all have a responsibility. I'll share my bumper sticker. I should make T-shirts. Um, you know, I've been talking about shared, shared ownership of the treaty, shared responsibility for the treaty, and shared accountability. Now, clearly for the U.S. and the nuclear weapon states, we are responsible for, for making progress on nuclear disarmament because we are the possessors of nuclear weapons. President Obama is committed to doing that. But all the other states have responsibilities, too, and they also have ownership of this treaty. So if we could just kind of change, change the way we approach this and not seeing it as a zero-sum game or it's, you know, it's up to a certain group or so forth and get more of a collaborative approach um, uh, approach to this that carries over into 2015, I think we'll have a much better shot of uh, producing a result then that will reinforce the treaty and the regime and take us, you know, down the road to the next step so that we can make more progress, and in all pillars, on disarmament, on nonproliferation, and on peaceful uses. So that's, that's my, my hope.
0: So you mentioned there's a shared responsibility. I think, um, and you also, in your remarks, you suggested some statistics that there was a lot more participation from NGOs and particularly, um, you know, younger analysts and so forth who are becoming more interested in these issues at the, the 2010 review conference. You know, what can groups like Carnegie, like some of the other civil society organizations that are here, do to help with this sort of shared responsibility part going forward?
2: Uh, Great question. Um, I think the role of civil society and NGOs and and groups of, of young people and others are critically important. You know, I've been in public service for 36 years, and I see that as serving the public. And if we're not serving civil society and being responsive to NGOs... Um, and as Daryl knows and others, you know, when the NGOs are on your side, they can be a tremendous force multiplier. So, uh, And I've had the good fortune of working on a couple of MPT review conferences where that's been the case. Uh, I think it is important. Uh, I think Carnegie and other groups, you can do this kind of thing where you bring people together. Um, ask the tough questions. I mean, I have my notes here you know, if, if we don't have good answers, if the government folks who are doing this stuff don't have good answers, let us know. Um, sometimes questions get raised that we haven't thought about. We can go back and think about it. So I think by facilitating the dialogue between the the government officials who have to go off and represent governments and make decisions that bind governments and, and the public, the civil society and the informed NGOs and so forth, um, you know, we have a better partnership there. So I, I would just say continue to do this. And I, again, I think getting information out about these issues, on all the issues, not just MPT, but the others, so that there is a, a, a forum to inform people who want to be informed about these issues is critically important. I think involvement on these issues, and I, I feel that as long as I've been in this business uh, working on these issues, we don't have a natural constituency for our issues. Everybody here and in London is seized with these issues and, and, and you know, believes they're important, but I think in terms of the national discourse, these kinds of issues are sort of niche issues, and they're not issues that, you know, dominate the news cycle. Um, and so it makes it harder to uh, sometimes to move forward when you don't have a natural constituency. So, so you have to be that and, um, and help us uh, get the message out and get the support we need to move forward on, on all of these agendas.
0: You, you mentioned your record of, of public service. In our quadrennial silly season, that's the presidential election uh, process here, I think uh, public service uh, bureaucrats are often... Uh, denigrated. Know. Um, you know, advice for younger folks who are entering this field, uh, involved with groups like INES or the the Pony Process here in DC, uh, on how to to formulate a career uh, on these issues. Um, you've had uh, a number of different experiences uh, with ACTA, with the State Department, with the Defense Department. You know, how did you think about your career and, and uh, you know any reflections on it?
2: Uh, well, looking back, I um, I. Uh, I I never would have imagined today, uh, 36 years ago, where I would be here now today. So it it sort of has unfolded in ways, and it hasn't been very calculated. So sometimes things just happen. Um, I do think, um, you know, government service I think is terribly important. It is hard to get into government service, um, and it's going to become harder as you know the government is is reduced. Uh, and I, you know, as many many of us in the room who've been in government, you know, we kind of get used to being maligned as lazy bureaucrats. I, I know, um, you know, that uh, that we we are not. Um, but I, I think it is it is very important uh, to look to, to look at it as as a career. And I found a quote recently, and, and this was more relevant to me in my last or two positions ago, and it was by a career uh, civil servant who said uh, they saw the role of of the career you know seniors. Um, uh, to, to speak truth to power and to be the continuity and to provide the advice as the political people came in. Now, I'm in a, I'm in a presidential appointment right now, which I, I have to say I would never have imagined I would have been in. But, but throughout my career, it's the, the role that we play as the career bureaucrats in terms of being the, the, the ones there who, who sort of know where the bodies are buried can provide the advice – your, your leaders may not take that advice, but your responsibility is to give them the best advice. And, and I think that's an important role that that, uh, that we play, and I think it, it has to continue to be played, and there's and they, there's a real need for some continuity. Sometimes knowing a little history is uh, not a bad thing.
0: So. so we'll look forward to your book on where all the dead bodies are buried. Mina, <laughs> <No. laughs> <laughs> any last questions or comments from London?
1: Um, yes, we've got a few Yeah, Jenny,
2: sure. Um, Ambassador Burke, this is Jenny again, Um, just while we have you. um, If you have any advice on how to prevent um, frustrating procedural delays in adopting an agenda at the PrEPCOM, so as not to repeat the 2007 MPT PrEPCOM delays. Well, for our part, what we did when we saw the agenda was, uh, I went back uh, to Washington and said, this looks good. It allows us, it covers everything we're interested in. We shouldn't make any changes. And so that's our position. Uh, we'll see if others will take that position as well. I think the chairman has done a very good job in, in uh, laying out an agenda that um, is uh, clean and comprehensive and laying out um, a timetable for the PREPCOM that provides an opportunity for everyone to talk about everything. And uh, at least for our part, the United States has, is not uh, prepared to uh, niggle over words um, when, we, uh, when we're quite confident that uh, we have uh, a vehicle to discuss uh, all of the issues that we care about at that meeting. And uh, in some meetings that I've been in, uh, in, in overseas, I get the sense that this may be the attitude of the vast majority of NPT parties, that they are not at all interested uh, about a big procedural flap. Um, I'm not sure that view is shared by everyone, but we'll know when we get to Vienna. But for our part, we, we're ready to just get, you know, get this adopted and, and move on and let's start talking about the substance and what we need to do to, uh, to take this forward. And I think that's probably the British view as well. <laughs> There's a question here. Yeah. Hi, this is Josie Ballinger from the U.S. Government Accountability Office. I appreciate your comments about uh, lazy bureaucrats, just to start out with. Um, (laughs) See these bags under my eyes? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You talked a lot about the the need for NPT countries to step up their efforts regarding noncompliance. And you briefly touched on uh, U.S. support to IAEA and its safeguards program. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the specific areas where you think IAEA has a bigger role to play to possibly build up some um, expertise or resources to address safeguards, and what steps IAEA is already taking, how U.S. is supporting that, and so on. Uh, gosh. Um, well, I think one of the, the the things that the IEA did in in 2000 was its members negotiated the additional protocol, which was uh, a response to what they learned in Iraq. And you know, interestingly enough, the additional protocol was adopted unanimously by the IEA membership. And now the the goal is to get all the, the states to, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Negotiate a, an additional protocol for themselves and bring it into force. So that's a big issue. There is work going on in the IAEA looking at safeguards. I think the IAEA is continually looking at ways of um, making sure that the safeguards are as comprehensive but as economical, uh, economical as possible and efficient. Um, but I can't really speak to the specific issues. I'm not. I, I, I'm not. I know that there are efforts underway. The U.S. government is involved. Uh, with its experts and, and its various folks. I know we have people from our DOE labs that participate in this as experts. Um, but I can't speak to the specific issues because I'm not familiar enough with all the details. Um, you know, we're a huge supporter of the IEA. I think, in, you know, in international organizations, it's, you know, in the old, at least in the old days, the IEA and NATO were the, the, two, uh, the two international organizations that the U.S. You know, sees as uh, essential for its national security. So. Um, We are very supportive of of the program. Carl, (laughs) two-finger?
5: I do a lot of work uh, with the IAEA, so I'd just like to make a comment. I think one area that the agency is moving into that could be extremely important is uh, dealing with illicit trafficking of nuclear materials, dual-use items, and and the like. They maintain what's called an illicit trafficking database. Mm -hmm. It's an imperfect instrument right now because, of course, Transferring sensitive information to a multilateral organization always raises certain policy issues. But I think uh, with the additional protocol and the reporting requirements <laughs> under that, the agency is acquiring a great deal of information about what countries are, are doing. And so I think the illicit trafficking area is, is one that the agency could really expand its, uh, its work in and should be supported by the United States.
2: Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. I, I that didn't come immediately to mind, but I know that that is a that's a big issue. That and and uh, uh, nuclear safety and other issues, particularly as more and more countries um, uh, move into the area of, of nuclear energy and other sorts of things, these kinds of programs are going to be critically important uh, to ensure that uh, that all of this is viable.
9: Sir, the back. Ms. Burke, I concern myself with uh, the building of. Uh, the natural constituency for these issues, uh, beyond the level of Carnegie, Brookings, uh, the major think tanks here in the city and elsewhere, uh, there is a lower level of uh, community-based organizations that need to know what their interests are in these matters. And um, I'm, I'm concerned that uh, beyond my participation, my peers and colleagues, don't know enough about this issue and how we can best engage beyond the level of the established NGOs.
2: And, and who are you and what is your organization?
9: Um, I'm the Washington representative for Mayors for Peace. Okay. And um, I was at the MPT in 2010. Uh, and this is a big issue for, yeah. for me and some of my, my colleagues, but uh, it's hard to get it out. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you for coming today and for raising that issue i mean that 's exactly the point. It is hard to get it out i you know I, i've had i 've had the great uh, pleasure of being invited to speak uh, you know world affairs councils. I went to Alaska to Anchorage and Juneau, and uh, Milwaukee and I spoke to a group here and, and uh, you know I think Margot here is the head of our strategic communications office um, since she 's come on board they 've been working very hard to try to get people out and do that i think that's that's the one way to, to do it is to uh to look for opportunities for speakers to get out um you know there are other things too Margot. i mean you know people could write op-eds and that sort of thing but um and and i i've seen in the past where u.n associations or mayors for peace or others could sponsor i mean you could always sponsor some sort of event you know, with, with people and, and come to Washington or, you know, elsewhere and try to get a speaker to come and speak to the group. I don't know any other better way to do that, um, you know, there's, because there's a lot of good news out there, too. I think what people see is the bad news, and it gets, you know, funneled through certain ways. Um, but getting out that information, you've got to have people that are interested in hearing the information, and I don't think there would be any difficulty in getting uh, informed U.S. officials to come and speak to groups. Uh it's I you know, I love that. I particularly love it when it's college campuses and things like that. Uh the fact that anybody's interested in hearing about this is is great. So um, you know, you're you're putting your finger on a really important point and I did mention that as well. It's been something I've been very keenly aware of for many years that this is one of those issues that you know, a congressman is not gonna say, Oh I better vote for the C T B T or I won't be reelected. Okay. So I, I I'll stop there.
0: Okay. <laughs> London, any further questions?
2: We've got one final question.
0: Chris. Okay. Uh, Chris, King's College, London. Um, this question actually relates back to the uh, fuel cycle discussion
3: you're having in Washington uh, a little bit earlier. I've got quite a specific question uh, regarding the One Two Three agreement uh, between the United States uh, and South Korea, which is under discussion uh, at the moment. But South Korea are interested in a future fuel cycle, including fast reactors and pyroprocessing. processing to meet their energy security needs and sort of waste storage issues. Uh, I just wanted to ask uh, how this is
0: progressing uh, on the U.S. end and what you thought the prospects were for perhaps a multilateral facility uh, in South Korea uh, on power processing. Sure so the, the question was about whether in the U.S. South Korea 123, whether to deal with South Korea's interest in power processing or fast reactors or other sort of you know, newer fuel cycle technologies, whether a multilateral facility might be imagined.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, I'm not going to comment on that agreement because um, I – on the content of that, uh, it's it's an ongoing negotiation, and I I frankly am not entirely certain, but I do think that is a negotiation that's going on right now, uh, and all of these issues are are certainly, you know, on the table, Um, but I can't can't provide any answer on uh, on, on how it is, both because I don't know, but I think even if I knew, I probably couldn't, (laughs) so – any last
0: questions here? Oh, Mina, do you want to have the final word from London?
1: Sure. Um, it's just to say thank you, really, for um, hosting the event and for moderating, and for Ambassador Burke for um, for coming to the event today and um, and providing some remarks to the U.S. audience and to um, to the audience in London here as well. Um, just a quick follow up about what we're doing here in London. Um, we will be publishing a brief about the discussions here, which will reflect some of the um, the recommendations that we would put forward um, from the event for the PREVCOM and beyond. And uh, and that will be on the website next week. So those of you who are interested in D.C., please have a look at our website next week. And and that we also look forward to future engagement with Carnegie, with State, um, and that we're hoping to be at Generation Prague Conference in June. we have been working with Erin as well to see if we can be there. And, um, and also to say thank you to our members. I know there's quite a few who are attending the, um, the event in D.C. today, so, uh, so we're glad that they're participating. And, and finally, just to say thank you to Carnegie for hosting and for Toby for the excellent moderation.
2: Right. And Amina, can I just say we we'll look forward to seeing you in Vienna. And uh, I know that there is an, an afternoon that will be uh, in the PREPCOM that's uh, gonna be devoted to uh, uh, presentations by NGOs. I don't know whether you'll, you'll be speaking, uh, but we'll look forward to doing that, and I think engagement with NGOs. Our delegation uh, was very engaged at the review conference, and, and they are all uh, ready to, uh, to interact with, with you uh, when we're in Vienna, so come find us. Let us know where you are, and maybe we can go out for a beer. <laughs>
1: Looking forward to it. And we're also hosting two events during the week. Um, One is on strengthening interagency cooperation between the IAEA and the CTBTU, which will be in the second week of the PREPCOM. And and following up in the afternoon, that same day, we're hosting another event on the status of the implementation of the Treaty of Palindaba. And we've got the commissioner for the commission who will be speaking as well. So we look forward to the U.S. um, delegates being there as well. Yeah,
2: We'll, we'll look forward to being there.
0: Sounds like an interesting program indeed. Yeah,
2: sounds great.
0: Well, thanks to all of you, and uh, thanks to INN's and the Embassy in London and the State Department, uh, Aaron Harbaugh and Margot Squires, and to the Carnegie staff, uh, in particular, Madeline Foley, for helping organize this. Thanks all to you, and a special thanks to Susan for, for coming out being a sport about some of the the My hard the hardball, the softball, and everything in between. I um, look forward to seeing you again here soon. Thanks very much.
2: Thanks, Toby. Yeah. I really appreciate it. <laughs>